Hey guys, welcome back. I'm Jill. And today we're going to learn from some of the best. We're going to look at some of the historical, really old historical applications of apologetics. We're going to look at how Paul himself used apologetics and how he handled a really tough situation. And we can use this to help us in our tough situations. So let's get started. So we're going to go all the way back to the 5th century BC, that's before Christ, or BCE, before the Christian era, to Socrates. Okay, Socrates was in a court in Athens, and he was defending his worldview. And we know this because his student Plato wrote about it in his book, The Analogy, or The Apology. So Christian apologetics as a discipline obviously hasn't been around since the 5th century BC because there were no Christians in the 5th century BC. There was no Christ in the 5th century. So it didn't start until Christ was born. But shockingly, Christian apologetics started right at the beginning, right at the very beginning. As soon as there were Christians, there had to be Christian apologetics because people didn't understand what was going on. They thought some really weird stuff about Christians. And we'll talk about it. It was it was crazy what they thought Christians were doing. All right. So let's go back to one of the earliest records of apologetics we have with Paul. And he actually, it's written in our New Testament. It's in Acts chapter 17. We've got Paul of Tarsus. And he is in Athens waiting for his companions, okay? They've been run out of uh, Berea. They've been run out of Thessalonica. And so Paul uh, was waiting while Silas and Timothy finished what they were doing. They finished the work that they were doing. And they were going to meet Paul in Athens. And so he could have just sat around and wait for him, but that's not Paul's style. Paul's style is to get to work. So he goes to the synagogue and he reasons with those in the synagogue. He tries to show them how Jesus was the Messiah they were waiting for. Um, and he also went to the marketplace. So he's trying to reach both Jews and non-Jews. And while he's in the marketplace, uh, people come up to him and say, hey, the city leaders want to talk to you about this. Let's go to the Areopagus. And that's where the leaders of the city would be able to evaluate what he was saying and see what was going on. So let's go to Acts chapter 17. I'm actually going to read it to you. We're going to start at, let's start with verse 16. All right. I'm in the ESV version. If you want to follow along, if not, just give a good listen. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who just happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that this divine being is like a gold, is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you about this. We'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So that was in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. And Athens truly was a beautiful place, guys. It was full of statues and architecture. But walking around, that wasn't what impressed Paul. What happened is he was, in, he was troubled because people were constantly striving to please all of these gods. Can you imagine having all of these gods in control of different parts of your life? And you don't really know how to please them because they're fickle. And you don't know which one to sacrifice to at which day. It's, it's a constant struggle, a constant battle. But Paul finds that they're so scared of messing up, of making these gods mad, that they actually made an idol to an unknown god in case they missed one. So he uses this. He uses this as a starting point to reach them. And that's really smart. We can do that. What you can do is you can find things that you agree on. You can find truths that are ultimate truths. And you can use that as a way to open up a conversation, to get talking with people. Now, when you are talking with people about your faith, it's very important to understand what they're, what they believe, where they're coming from. Paul was actually very well educated on what they believed. He even quoted one of their ancient poets to them. So he was an authority. All right. Let's see. Oh yeah. I really want to tell you about what happened uh, with the early Christians too. All right. So it's the, the second century AD. That's the 100 era, the 100s. And the Roman emperor was seen to be a god, a deity. And he had to be worshipped as such. Everyone had to worship this, this Roman god. Now, you didn't just pray to him at home. You had to do it in public. All right. And not doing it was akin to treason. And so Christians had a real problem. They can't publicly do this. They can't publicly worship the Roman God and stay faithful to the real God. Now, Jews had an agreement with the Romans. The Jews were allowed to abstain from this. But once Christianity split, once Christianity was no longer seen as a, as a Jewish 
subculture as a, as a subsect of Judaism, once they were separated, it's a problem. They're, they're no longer protected. And so now they either have to sacrifice or be seen as treasonous. And so they were, they were in a real pickle. Um, and some other things that, that really bothered is the people is they thought they were atheists. They accused the Christians of being atheists because they weren't worshiping all of these Roman gods. And so if something bad happened, they would blame the Christians for making these gods mad. Another problem they had, okay, were being accused of cannibalism and incest. I, I'm not kidding. All right. So cannibalism and incest were both related charges, and they're related to the Eucharist, which is what we call the Lord's Supper. And back then, they were called love feasts, and they wouldn't just take a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine or grape juice. They would have a full meal, all right? <laughs> you can start to see where the confusion comes in, especially when you start adding the language they were using. They would use the language of eating Jesus's flesh and drinking his blood. That's the cannibalism charge. So they had to explain what they meant. It was just a misunderstanding. And it also didn't help that they called each other brothers and sisters. And so that's where the incest charge came in. So they just had to explain themselves. They had to, to figure out where the confusion lie. And then the apology process was just explaining the truth. I thought that was so funny. Um, and a lot of these misunderstandings were fueled by their seclusion and their seemingly secretive nature. Um, and they were also accused of, uh, of believing blindly, of not being rational by these people worshiping multiple pagan idols, which I think is very, very funny. Some of these accusations are really far from what we struggle with today. Christians are not often accused of cannibalism mostly because people understand what is meant by the Eucharist. But we can still learn a lot from the situation. First, I want us to learn to avoid church words unless absolutely necessary. And then if it is necessary, include your definition of the term. When people come to church, they don't, they don't want to be on the outside. And it seems really clickish if you have your own terminology and your own language and they don't understand what's going on. So be very open and clear with your words. Um, for example, saying things like, oh, we're washed in the blood. Imagine if you'd never heard that before and you were coming to church for the first time. You'd be a little freaked out, right? I would. So we don't need to use that kind of terminology. And if you need to, just don't assume that those around you have any clue what you're talking about. So try to include the definition. Another thing is to explain what's going on, rituals and tradition. Try to explain what's going on as it's going on. Never assume that people have any idea what you're talking about or why you're doing what you're doing. Um, avoid the appearance of being cliquish as secretive little groups. Church shouldn't be a social club. It shouldn't be an exclusive club. It should be open and we should be open about our beliefs and our traditions. And something that really helps that is knowing what you believe and why you believe it and knowing it's true for sure. So that's one reason we're going to do what we're doing. We can show that Christianity logically and reasonably explains the world better than any alternative. And I really want to push this point that God does not require blind faith. 
He calls us to love him with all of our minds, all of our bodies, and our souls. We're not required to think blindly. God gave us intellect to use and to relate to him intellectually. Thank you guys so much for joining us today on this quick historical journey into apologetics. Catch us next time. Click the little subscribe doohickey wobber, and we'll see you then. Bye, guys.